0: Hey, we are continuing our study today on the life of the Apostle Simon Peter. Now, if you remember where we left off last week, Jesus has taken Peter and the disciples aside to a little town called Caesarea Philippi. And, you know, up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has taught some provocative sermons he has healed many sick people of their diseases and the crowds are beginning to say that Jesus is some sort of prophet and moral teacher and i mean essentially Jesus is gaining popularity and influence all over the place and but Jesus took his disciples aside to this little town and while he's there he asked them point blank he says look i know what everybody else is saying about me but but i need to know who you who do you say that i am and peter Confesses, He says, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You are the Savior. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. You are the rock, man. And on your confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. And so at this very moment, the secret is out with the disciples. I mean, they know that Jesus is the Christ. They know that he's the Messiah that the world has been longing for and waiting for. They know that He is the one who would rescue the people of God from oppression and deliver them and elevate them. And at this moment, I'm sure that the disciples are ready to go. Like, they're ready to lock arms with Jesus and announce this thing to the world. They've got the good news and they are ready to tell everyone. But Jesus gives a shocking command to the disciples in our passage today. Uh, in, In our passage is Matthew chapter 16. And in verse 20 it says, Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You know, if this was a movie, right here is where they would insert a record scratch, like, you know, wait, what? I mean, the disciples would have been so confused right here. They're like, Jesus, you're the Christ. This is all that our families and friends and rabbis and teachers have been talking about for generations. This is what the prophets went on and on about, that a Messiah was coming and that he would deliver our people and give us power and freedom. And now we know that you are him. This is the best news in the world. And now you're telling us to be quiet about it? Why? And you know, it's not just the 12 disciples that Jesus tells to be quiet about this. You see all throughout the Gospels where Jesus will heal someone and then He'll command them not to tell anybody. Theologians call this the messianic secret. It's where Jesus is constantly instructing people to keep His power and authority a secret. So let's ask the obvious question. Why is Jesus commanding people to be silent about who He is? And I think there are at least two reasons. The first is that Jesus isn't ready to die yet. I mean, Jesus knows that his life is going to end in crucifixion, but he also knows that this moment is not his time to die, and you know, he often tells his disciples, he says, hey, my hour has not yet come. It's coming, but not yet. And Jesus knows that as soon as the religious leaders hear that he is claiming to be the Christ, that he is claiming to be the Messiah, that they'll accuse him of blasphemy and they'll be calling for his head. And he knows that to declare publicly that he is the king in an empire that already has one is inviting controversy. I mean, Jesus, he still has sermons to preach. He has people to heal, followers to call, a ministry to pursue. And he doesn't want to invite controversy or opposition before the time is right. Secondly, I think Jesus tells him to keep it a secret because he knows his disciples aren't ready for what's to come. I mean, we see elsewhere in the Gospels that once the disciples find out that Jesus is the Messiah, they immediately start dreaming about what that means for them. And they think in their minds, if Jesus is the Messiah and we're part of his inner circle, that means we are in. We're going to be powerful. We're going to have influence and we're going to have prestige. There's even this one point in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20 where James and John's mom comes to Jesus and she approaches him and she's like, hey, Jesus, Jesus, Look, when you establish your kingdom, I just need to know my boys are going to be your number two and number three, right? Like, my boys are going to be vice president and secretary of state. I mean, I just need to know this, Jesus. Like, my boys are going to be right and left of you, right? You see, the disciples had an incomplete and insufficient understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be the the Messiah. They had it in their heads that the Messiah was going to be this political savior for their people, and he was going to represent victory and power and triumph and prosperity and even vengeance. And He was going to establish a kingdom and overcome evil. And the truth is, they're not wrong. The Scriptures do say that the Messiah will do exactly those things. But they really, it's like they only memorized the verses about the ending, the victory, but they didn't pay attention to the verses about the process. They knew what the Messiah was going to accomplish, but they weren't ready to understand how He was going to do it and how He was going to ask them to participate. In Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 42, for example, Jesus it talks about how the Messiah will claim His throne and accomplish His victory, not through warfare and domination, but through suffering and sacrifice. This means that not only will Jesus have to suffer, but His disciples will as well. And Jesus knows that in this moment, none of these guys are ready. They're not ready to count the cost of following Him to the cross. And so Jesus, for the first time here, He explains to them what's going to happen and how He's going to die and how He's going to be raised on the third day. Look at what He says, verse 21. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus says to them, He says, Look, you guys think I'm going to wage an actual war on the Romans? No, I'm actually going to be killed by Roman authorities and at the hands of our religious leaders. But my victory will not come through defeating them. It will come through defeating death itself. And Jesus, I mean, I, I love that Jesus is just up front and honest with them about what's coming in the future. There's no bait and switch with Jesus. He tells them the whole truth about what it means to follow him up front. <laughs> and now watch this. You remember last week when I said that Peter has a bit of a pattern of being a loudmouth. I mean, he tends to speak before he thinks. He puts his foot in his mouth. He's always the first one. To, he, I mean, he's just always the first one to talk. Well, look at what Peter says here in verse 22. It says that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This, will never, this, this shall never happen. You're like, oh, Peter, man, you got to love the guy. Like one minute, he's like, Jesus, you're the Christ, man. You're the son of the living God. And the next minute, he's like, hey, Jesus, come here, come here. I need to tell you how to do your job. I mean, Peter in this moment has the nerve to rebuke Jesus. He's like, you can't die, Jesus. That's not what a Messiah does. That's not what's best. That is not, Jesus, how we'll be freed from our oppression. That's not how a kingdom is established. Come on, Jesus. Let me tell you how to do this. But verse 23 says that Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance, a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here's what's happening here in this passage. Jesus knows that in order to save the world from our sins, He must die in our place on a cross. But Peter, I mean, he's, just, he's still thinking that Jesus' job is going to be to build an earthly kingdom of power, prosperity, victory, and vengeance. And Peter is thinking of the things of earth. He's thinking of the things of man. But Jesus is thinking about the things of heaven, the things of God. And when Jesus says He's going to die... Peter tries to stop Jesus from doing the will of his Father. And Jesus uses very harsh, the harshest possible words to rebuke him. He says, get behind me, Satan. And I want you to think, what a day for Peter. Can you imagine? I mean, this comes moments after he says you're the Christ. Like, can you imagine him coming home to his wife that night? She's like, how was your day, honey? He's like, well, sweetie, like Jesus called me the rock and he's going to build his church on my confession. It's like, oh, that's great, sweetheart. Jesus, he really respects you. It's like, yeah, sweetie, but then he called me Satan. You're like, what a day. Now, why did Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? Because all throughout the gospel, Satan shows up and his whole scheme is to try and tempt Jesus to forego the cross. And right here, Peter is doing the exact same thing. He's saying, Jesus, do the Messiah thing, but don't do the crucifixion. Peter doesn't realize it, but what he's doing is he's asking Jesus to take the glory of the resurrection without the pain of the cross. He's asking Jesus to be the king without the cross. And Peter is actually doing the work of Satan, and he doesn't even realize it. He's trying to take the cross out of Christianity. And look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, the central issue between Peter and Jesus in this passage is this. Jesus is trying to show Peter the necessity of the cross, and Peter is trying to diminish the need for it. Peter at this moment wants a Christianity that is void of pain and void of suffering. He wants a Christianity that's void of the cross of Christ, and that's not possible. You know, it's easy for us to look at Peter and think, like, man, Peter, why are you such an idiot? But I want to show you this morning that we do the same thing. We try to diminish the cross from our own Christianity. And so I want to offer two ways this morning that we avoid and diminish the cross in our own lives. And then I hope to convince you that the cross of Christ is not something to look away from, but to rest in and walk in. And the first way that we diminish the cross is this. We diminish the cross when we live in our guilt and shame. You see, a basic understanding of the cross is this. Christians believe that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross when He was crucified. We believe that on the cross, Jesus, who is sinless, put our sins upon His shoulders. And He was punished and crucified in our place, and He died the death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven by God and gain the reward of eternal life and full acceptance that only Jesus deserves. And we sing these songs, you know, songs that say, Jesus paid it all, or it is finished. But we Christians, we often do this weird thing where even though we confess and sing that we believe that Jesus paid it all, sometimes we live like Jesus only paid some and we have to keep paying up every time we mess up. What I mean is that many of us, when we stumble, and when we fall, and when we do that thing that we hate, or that thing we said we would never do again, or when we fall off the wagon, when we do these things, we live with so much shame and guilt, and we don't actually live the confident and secure lives that we should live if we really believe that Jesus paid it all. Several years ago, I was um, serving as a pastor at a church in a college town, and we had a young college student. Um, I mean, this was a guy who loved Jesus and he wanted to honor Jesus with his life. But one weekend, he found himself in a typical college situation where he was just tempted to do something that he, was, he knew was wrong, and he did it. And immediately afterwards, he was just overcome with guilt and shame. And he called me on that Monday and he said, Will, I, I need to come by your office. Can we talk? And so he came and he sat down in my office and he laid out all the things he did and how ashamed and guilty he felt. And he said to me, he said, Will, I haven't prayed. I haven't opened my Bible. I didn't go to church this weekend. He said, how could I? I just feel so ashamed. I feel like a hypocrite. And so I just opened my Bible in my office and I read 1 John 1, 1.9 to him, which says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I said, hey man, you just confessed to me and I know you've confessed to God. And the truth is, God is faithful. You're forgiven. Rest, breathe and go on with your life with confidence that Jesus paid it all. And he said, yeah, I've already done that. I've already confessed, but what else do I need to do? Like, do I need to do community service? Do I need to pray a hundred Hail Marys? He's, like, He's like, what else do I have to do? I said, no. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Confess your sin. Believe that Jesus has paid for it already. Receive God's forgiveness. And walk in the newness of life. I said, bro, you're trying to pay for a sin that's already been paid for. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, It can't be that easy. I said, It wasn't easy. It cost Jesus his very life. But Jesus, when he was being nailed to that cross, he already knew that you were what you were going to do this weekend. And he died for you anyway. And I told him, Your problem right now is that you're just not fully convinced that on the cross Jesus really paid it all for you. And you're still trying to pay for your sins when Jesus already has the receipt in hand. And I think for many of us, we fall into this same trap. I know I do. And when we do, we minimize the glory of the cross. Jesus paid it all, the song says. All to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You see, we diminish the cross when we fail to believe that Jesus really has paid for our sins so that we can be fully forgiven by God. The second way we diminish the cross, and it's this we diminish the cross when we fail to make sacrifices in following Jesus. Listen, the cross of Christ is proof that God is gracious, It is proof that God gave His one and only Son to die in our place. You cannot question God's love for you. He gave everything so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be restored, so that you can be a new creation. That is grace, that is mercy, that is undeserved, and that is good news. We call it the gospel. Through the cross of Christ, God has rescued you from the penalty of your sins and has purchased your admission into the kingdom of God for all eternity. But if you are a follower of Jesus, that means that you follow Jesus. And our Savior and Lord, Jesus the Christ, His life was marked by sacrifice. He continually gave Himself up for others and for the will of His Father. And Jesus said these words to Peter and the rest of the disciples. He said, if you're going to come after me and follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. Jesus was calling His disciples that day to follow Him into a life that was lived For the sake of others and for the glory of God. And every single one of Jesus' disciples in the coming years would be called upon to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. And they did so with joy because they knew that it was the life that Jesus was calling them to. And I'll be honest, one of the reasons that I think American Christianity is frankly so weak and anemic these days is because we view Jesus as the pathway to the American dream, or we view Jesus as our ticket to prosperity. Many Christians have bought into this weird notion that if they come to church and drop some money in the offering plate and read their Bibles once a week and listen to Christian music, then somehow Jesus owes them a pain-free life or Jesus owes them non-stop blessings or they think that Jesus would never ask them to do anything hard for the sake of others or even for His own sake. But Jesus never promised these things. He asked us to follow Him, to imitate Him, to do what He did. And what He did was give His life for others. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, He means that following Him will sometimes be very hard. God will call you to do hard things. But it is the hard things that bring glory to God, draw people to Himself, and it's the hard things that make you more like Jesus. In my life, I think of a few people I know, um, some particularly wealthy people who have literally given so much money away that it has knocked them down two, three, or even four socioeconomic classes. And they, live in smaller ho- they live in a smaller house than they could afford. They drive cars that no one else in their, income, uh, in, the, in their income range would drive. They sacrifice vacations and sometimes even inheritances for their children so that they can give more money to, the advancing, to advancing the work of Jesus around the world, funding missionaries, funding churches, funding all sorts of things around the world. I also think of friends of mine, businessmen and women, who moved their entire businesses, uprooted their entire lives to move to dangerous parts of the world where very few people know Jesus so that they can start businesses, love their neighbors, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. I also know of many godly, godly single men and women who endure deep, loneliness for long long periods of time because they refuse to settle for a relationship with someone who is not as equally committed to following Jesus as they are. That's a cross to bear. I think of so many in our church who give up two Sundays a month where they don't worship in the auditorium with the rest of us so that they can serve Crossroads kids That is a major sacrifice. I I think of those in our church who show up at 8 a.m. when we worship in person to unload a van and set up our sound equipment in kids' classrooms so that the rest of us can have an environment where we can uh, meet and worship God. And I think of those in our church who during this pandemic have delivered hundreds of meals to people all over Brooklyn. Some of our people in our church have given up sometimes multiple evenings a week to feed the hungry. Sometimes following Jesus means that He will call us to do things that are inconvenient, uncomfortable, and sometimes painful. But I don't know a single person, I really don't, who has ever given up something for the sake of Jesus that has ever regretted it. You see, it's through our greatest sacrifices that God uses us to bless others, and it's through our greatest sacrifices that God shapes us and forms us into the image of Jesus. I know that for me personally, there's this uh, there is one time in my life, in mine and Rebecca's life, where we felt a clear call from God to do something hard for Jesus. And it was when God called us to adopt our son. We were newlyweds, we were broke, and adoption is expensive. But we believed that God was calling us to take all the money we had saved up. I mean, we were thinking that money was going to be a down payment for a house. But we took that, God called us to take that money and to adopt an orphan. Because we were convinced that God grieves when any child is an orphan. And James 1.27 says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we just felt like we weren't exempt from this verse and that God was calling us to this. And so we gave up all of our savings to adopt our son. And I'll be honest with you, there were many well-meaning Christians in our lives that told us that it was a mistake and that we shouldn't do it. They lovingly pulled us aside, just like Peter did to Jesus, and they said, you really shouldn't do this. And listen, just like Peter tried to convince Jesus to disobey the will of his Father, when you live in obedience to the way of Jesus, I promise you there will always be well-meaning people in your life who will try to deter you, but you must stay the course, not for their sake, not even for yours, but for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of others. And my wife and I, we went through with the adoption, and the adoption itself was a painful journey. Tears, frustration, waiting, and paperwork, and paperwork, and paperwork. And as many of you know, our son, whom we adopted, has some pretty serious special needs. And I love that boy more than my own life itself. But i got to be honest, being his dad is the most challenging, hardest thing God has ever called me to do physical therapy appointments, the grief of missed developmental mild zones, and all the struggles that come with raising a special needs child. It's hard. And there are days when I complain and gripe to God and I say, this is too hard. Why did you call me to this? I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. But here's what I can tell you. The hardest thing that God has ever called me to do has been the very thing that He has used to bless me, shape me, mold me, mature me, and strengthen me more than anything else in my life. And I would not trade the pain or the difficulty for anything in this world because it is through the hard things, the crosses I've had to take up, that God has done His greatest work in me. And I know that there are a hundred other people in our church who could probably say the same thing, that the hardest thing God has ever called you to do, that is the thing that God used to make you more like Him. And I look at Peter and Jesus told him, He said, Take up your cross. And we're going to see as we continue to study Peter's life that Jesus calls Peter to some hard things. Jesus would, or Peter would eventually literally take up a cross. Church history tells us that Peter died for the sake of Jesus. He was crucified just like his Christ. But God, uh, but, but Jesus used Peter's life and death to bring countless thousands of people into the kingdom of God. So here's the point I'm trying to make. The beauty of the gospel is that if you're a follower of Jesus, God will never ask you to pay for your sins. Jesus already did that. Your forgiveness is secure. Your place in heaven is reserved. Glory to God. But God will call you to be like Jesus. He will call you to lay down your life, your preferences, your rights, for the sake of others and for the sake of His glory. But the promise of the Gospel is always that Jesus will be with you through it all. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow let me pray